Good morning. Um, I'd like to invite up Pastor Bree and her family. Um, the next part of our service is installation of Pastor Bree as our new pastor of youth and young adults. One of the great blessings um, and callings God has placed on all of us is to invest in, pray, encourage, and to raise up leaders among us and who are equipped to do every good work. It's with great joy um, and excitement that I'm bringing Pastor B for you, I guess, this morning. But this is, um, is a celebration, and we wanted to also invite you in there. Um, so let's start. Pastor Bree. Oh, well, this is my part first, I guess. As pastor of this congregation, it is my joy and privilege to present to you Bree Thompson, who has been called to serve as our pastor of youth and young adults. She has met the approval of the church board and myself. I was paused at that part. It's just weird. But she's met the approval of the church board and the congregation. We'll go with that. As being of one faith and purpose with us. Therefore, she has been invited to join our staff and ministry here. It is appropriate that we share in a formal installation as we come to this moment. Pastor Bree, my dear sister in Christ, in entering upon this work, do you faithfully promise that by help of God, you will endeavor to perform the duties appointed for you in the ministry of this church? I do. Now you. Do you, the people of this church, Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, accept and receive Bree Thompson as pastor of youth and young adults here? And do you promise to support her in her ministry among us? If so, please indicate this by standing. Pastor Bree, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, we welcome you as our pastor of youth and young adults in this congregation. May the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon you and abide with you always. At this time, I'd like to invite any young adults, any youth or parents or volunteers or anyone who wants to come up. Um, we're going to pray for Pastor Bree. So, yep, give you time to come up a little bit. And you don't have to come up. You could also reach out or just pray in your heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the mission and vision of this church. We thank you so much for what you've called us to be, a light in this city, a light in this region. And even as we look around the, the congregation, a light to our world. God, we thank you for Bree. We thank you for the love of our church you've placed in her heart. We thank you for how you've prepared her for this moment. We thank you for how you've equipped her. We thank you for her great passion and her dedication to the youth and young adults in this church. God, we pray that you surprise her. We pray that you minister to her and through her. We pray that you just give her wisdom, compassion, love. Let your mercy overflow in her. God, we thank you for the relationships she'll build. We thank you for the people she'll meet. We thank you for how your kingdom will be advanced. We pray for her family. We thank you for Steve for being a partner. We thank you for her three sons. We pray that as they join her on this leg of the journey, that we can remember them in prayer and encouragement and support. God, we thank you so much for the youth. We thank you for the young adults of this church. We thank you for this step of our journey together. God, we pray for a special blessing on Pastor Bree, and we pray that your light shines brightly through her, in her, and through all of us. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Pastor Bree, and thank you for this chance for her to serve you and for us all to serve you together. God, bless our youth and young adults as well. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen? Amen. 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 Um, at the end of this service, in the unfinished area where we do coffee, there'll be cake and punch, so you'll get a chance to greet Pastor Bree as well out there. The children are now dismissed.
Good morning, everyone. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. I'm not on. There it is. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. We will also have it up front as well. Um, this morning, we will be concluding our series, our Faith Builder series. One of the things I've really enjoyed about this series is that a lot of times when we go through Genesis and Exodus, you know, we learn about the early members of faith. We always talk about the patriarchs. And one of the great joys for me in learning and relearning some of these stories is being reminded that these weren't just women who were sisters in the faith but they're very much the matriarchs of our faith. Lots of what we believe, lots of what, where we are and how we think God is comes through their life and witness. Um, as we're going through this journey, we've talked about faith as something that has to be built. A lot of times we think of faith, we think it's something that has to be possessed, you know, something you have to, you have it. But faith is really something that must be built. And when God thinks about faith, you know, kind of our, our guiding verse in all of this has been Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When God thinks about faith, He's saying, do you trust me with your whole heart? Now, heart is all of you. That's your hopes, your dreams, your abilities, your resources, your gifts, your skills, all of you. Do you trust me with all of this? And are you willing in that trust in me to, to, to lean not onto your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to me and trust that I will make your path straight? Faith for God is something that must be built. Faith is a, is a product, but it's also this process that the more faith we give and the little we start with, God can grow it. And that way, when we go through the journey of the hills and the valleys and the desert and the rest, when God is growing our faith, we'll be able to face anything this world throws at us. Amen? Amen. But to get through faith, God has helped us. You know, one of the, the challenges and one of the calling or the, the calling maybe for all Christians is that we are to not only grow in our faith, we're grow to become more and more like Jesus. And praise God, he doesn't leave us on our own to do that. You know, the first thing he gives us is his Holy Spirit. And I'm always humbled by that because David, the man after God's own heart, said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Through faith in Jesus Christ, that same Holy Spirit now resides in you forever. God has given you his spirit to help transform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But God has also given you Jesus Christ, who didn't just die on the cross for you, but he lived a life to show you that it's possible to live and please God. So we have Jesus as our example. And then to also build our faith, God has blessed us with the witness of each other. We are a body of Christ. So many times we make our faith individual. We make it between me and God, but God says, no, it's about us. It's about all of you. And this body of Christ is not just Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church. It's every Christian who's ever believed. Think about that for a second. You're united to Christ with everyone who believes, people thousands of years ago. And if the world's still here, people thousands of years to come. You're united with the body of Christ. So God has given you his spirit to live in you, to transform you, the body to, to equip you and to, to push you out to do every good work, the scripture to form you, this authoritative God, this authoritative word of God to, to form you and to grow you and Jesus himself as the model. Now to help us again in this faith journey, we have testimony. We have stories. We have witness. One of the things that's really amazing, I think, about our human experience is that we are people of story. So my hope in this series is by recounting these eight women of faith, by telling and retelling their stories, we've learned something not only about God, but about ourselves as well. Remember from Eve, we remembered and learned that women and men are together created in the image of God. 
We learned that Eve was, was the Ezer when God designed all of his creation, the arc of his creation, the, the, the crescendo, if you will, the top of his creation was making mankind. Now, our English language betrays us because we read, you know, uh, in Genesis, we read, well, yeah, God created Eve and she's the helper. In our English language and culture, that means I'm in charge. Adam's in charge and she's the little helper. Like, you could be my assistant. That was never God's intent. That's not even what the word means. That's just the best we could come up with in English. The Ezra was your counterpart. The Ezra was your full equal. When God created Eve, it was as a co-regent. When God created Eve, he said, together you form my image. Together you rule the world. Together you're equipped for every good work. Got one. That's cool. We'll work on the rest of you. The second one that we looked at was Hagar. And Hagar is this, is this oh, tragic story on so many levels. But she was a reminder to us that no matter what we go through, no matter what we suffer, no matter how hard this world becomes, we have a God who sees us. What a blessing. What a treasure to hold on to. That no matter what situation you're in, our God sees you. Then we went to Sarah. And Sarah was this reminder to us that when we're waiting on the Lord, praise God, his faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. Praise God that his faithfulness is not dependent on how good we are. Because sometimes when he asks us to wait, we don't wait very well. But praise God that when we wait on him and he shows up on time, Praise God that he fulfills his promises. And that's the story of Sarah. That is not how well she waited or how bad she waited, but that God showed up on time and he fulfills his promises. And then we got to Rebecca. We learned from Rebecca's story that every single one of us is loved and chosen by God to do his work. Every single one of us. Sometimes we like, to, we like to get in this comfortable seat and bubble of like, well, yeah, the good Christians or the leaders, right? Here's the thing. You're all supposed to be the leaders. You're all loved and chosen by God. We all have a part to play. And Rebecca's story reminds you that God has loved you. God has chosen you. And God has called you to go and do his work. Then we got to Shipra and Pua the Hebrew midwives who chose life. Even when the king of Pharaoh told them to kill the babies, even when the king of Pharaoh made the law of the land to throw babies into the river, they chose life. And their testimony inspired us today in our day and culture to be Christians who choose life from the womb to the tomb. To be Christians who choose life, not just in dedication of Shepherd and Pua, but in dedication of our God himself who gives us abundant life. And then last week, we learned about Miriam's mother, Jochebed. Jochebed, this great woman of faith, whose simple, whose simple lesson to us is simply, is simply this, right? Your faith is meant to bring life. So many of us think our faith is meant to grow ourselves or to make me a better Christian or make me a better person. No, God cares about the world. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. But also remember, for God so loved the world, he desires to send you. Your faith is meant to bring life in all of us in our workplaces, in our homes, with our friends, with our family, everywhere we go, we have to be asking this question, how is my faith bringing life into this situation? And then we get to Miriam, the prophet, or as I like to call her, the pastor. 
In Hebrews, uh, in Exodus 15, we read this, 15, 19 to 21. Also be up here. You can follow or read along in your Bible. Exodus 15, 19 says, When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her. With timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Let's pray together. Yes, yes. Father, my God, we thank you so much for faith. We thank you so much that you've blessed us with your spirit that lives within us, that you've blessed us with the body that is all around us, with the scripture that's before us, with Jesus that's our model and our example. We thank you that you desire to grow our faith. God, help us to continue to grow our faith. Help us to continue to give you all of ourselves. God, we thank you for stories and witness and testimony. And God, we thank you for Miriam's story this morning as it's a reminder of how you can work through all of us, how you've called all of us, and how each of us have a part to play. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. Teach us how to love you more and how to love one another. In your holy and precious name, amen. One of the things I love about Miriam is that she's very much Eve's daughter. You know, this is the first time in Scripture that a woman is called prophet. I think it's the third time in all of Scripture. Now, that sounds really big, and then you realize we're only on the second book of the Bible. You know, it's Genesis, Exodus, right? But it's very, very important because I think for a lot of us in reading about Miriam, we see, you know, one of the, the mistakes I find that we make is that we see how many times a thing is mentioned in Scripture and we automatically equate that to importance. You know, we're like, well, Miriam only has three verses, so she can't be that important. But she was. There was something about her life that God says, I have chosen you to do this work. Miriam is very much, though, Eve's daughter, because just like we said a couple minutes ago, when God created men and women, he created them fully equal, fully capable, fully expectant to do all his work. Now, a lot of people go to Genesis 3 and it's like, well, this is what happened in the fall. I hear you, but praise God for Jesus Christ. Praise God that Jesus has lifted the curse. Praise God that Jesus has made it possible for us to get back to how he created things to be. But also praise God for the testimony that from Genesis to Revelation, through the arc of Christian history, we've seen women step up time and time again to show us the faith. is not just equipped to do the faith, but equipped to show us the faith. Praise God for the testimony of these saints, because a lot of us, maybe all of us, wouldn't be here without faithful women. Miriam is fully Eve's daughter in that she reminds Israel that God has chosen her, and she's part of what they like to think of as their triumvirate, the, the triangle of leadership. But more than Eve's daughter, and just being symbolic that women can do everything, personally, I love that Miriam is very much Jochebed's daughter. Remember Jochebed, her mother, she taught Miriam the faith. She taught Miriam who God was. She taught Miriam who she was. And what a challenge to all of us, to the people we invest in, to the children we invest in. Miriam was seven years old and she was able to stand up to Pharaoh's daughter and outsmart her because she knew who God was. She knew who she was and she knew what God was going to do. What is our excuse from imparting that to the next generation? What is our excuse from teaching them the faith? A lot of times I think we focus on, you know, we want our kids to believe and the young people to believe. It is not your job to force them to believe. That's between them and God. But it is your job 
It is your duty. It is your calling to teach them the faith. It's your calling to invest in them. And when you think about the fact that Miriam is seven, and she's able to look Pharaoh's daughter in the eye, and she's able to say, I know who God is. I know who my brother is. I know what God's going to do. She did that at seven years old. And some of us are still a little bit terrified to talk to our teenagers about the faith. But here's the thing. If you don't teach them the faith, who will? Second thing about Miriam being Jacobet's daughter is you have to realize that her mom did this intentionally. She didn't just wake up at seven and saw Pharaoh's daughter and then thought about this plan. She was prepared. So many of us buy the lies of the world and just buy this hook, line, and sinker. The world is so evil. What am I to do? The world is so dark. It's so big and bad and scary. Here's the thing. You serve the God of the universe. And if this world is too big and bad and scary for your God, you need to meet Jesus Christ, the real God. So many of us are defined by what the world is and isn't, and we're so scared and we think our job is to protect our children. That's God's job is to protect your children. Your job is to tell them, yes, this world is going to be dark, but you are the light of the world. Yes, this world is going to be broken, but you can bring healing to this situation. Yes, this world is not as it should be. It's not as it should be, but God wants to use you to help make our crooked path straight. We have to be bold as not just parents, but as adults investing in young people. We can no longer believe the lie that the world's too scary for them. Because if you take your neurotic fears and impart them into your children, you do not raise game changers. You do not raise light bringers. You do not raise people who are empowered by Jesus Christ to go out into the world. Do not pass on your fears. Pass on your faith. Do not pass on your, 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 your misunderstanding of what the world is and isn't. Pass on that yes, it's broken, but God's going to use you to heal it. Yes, it's dark, but God's going to use you to bring that light. The third thing about Miriam is that Scripture calls her a prophet. But the more I read about her, I realized that she's not just a prophet. She's a pastor. She's someone the people loved and adored and related to. And we get that more from Jewish tradition because in Jewish tradition, they said she's a member of the triumvirate. They looked at Moses and he was the lawgiver, the deliverer, the friend of God who spoke face to face with God. They loved him, but they couldn't really relate to him. They looked at Aaron and Aaron's the great high priest who blessed Israel with the priest through his line and who set up the whole priesthood of Israel. They couldn't necessarily relate to him either. But when they looked at Miriam, they saw someone they could talk to. They saw someone they could relate to. They saw someone who led them. And because of that, when they think of her prophecy, they say this about Miriam. They remember that she prophesied her brother's birth. Jewish tradition says that Miriam was the one. Aaron was all around. I was like, man, Aaron always gets forgotten, you know? Aaron was around, but when her mother was pregnant, Miriam, God spoke to her and says, this boy is going to be the deliverer of Israel. Think about as a kid having that vision and being able to not only believe that vision, but be bold enough to share that vision. How many of us are investing in young people to have not just hear from God, but to speak what they hear from God? 
The second thing the Jewish tradition said about Miriam being a prophet is that when the Pharaoh made the commandment to throw the babies into the river and to kill the babies, that her father Amram said, you know what, Jochebed, we've already got our two kids. Let's just focus on the ministry, you know? Let's just focus on our professional life, right? Now, hopefully those of you who are married, that's not how you approach marriage, right? Hopefully you're not just like, well, we got the kids, we're good. You do your own thing, I do my own thing, right? But Jewish tradition says it was Miriam who went to her father and says, this is dumb. What are you doing? You loved my mother. You need to get back with my mother. They give her, even as a seven-year-old, that voice that she's the reason her parents got back together. But the third ones are more spiritual in this sense. They believe that as part of the triumvirate with Moses and Aaron, that she's one of the three branches that birthed their faith. Remember in Genesis 40, when Joseph is in prison, he has this dream with the branches and the three branches that sprout up. They look at that as not just a dream or a vision. They said, you're right, the three branches did sprout up to build Israel and their names were Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And the third way that they've honored her is when they looked at the wilderness. They said, God blessed us in the wilderness. God blessed us with his presence. He did it in three ways. For Moses, the deliverer, he gave us manna. For Aaron, the the priest, he was a pillar or a cloud to show his presence. But for our sustenance to get through the day, he gave us Miriam, a rock, who was a well of water. The Talmud, which is one of the great Jewish writings and, and compiled writings, it named seven major female prophets. There was Sarah, who we've learned about, Miriam, who we're learning about this morning, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, who's probably my favorite person in the Bible, not named Jesus Christ, and Esther. I say that to remind us that when we read Miriam the prophet, we must understand that in her culture, to her people, she was fully, fully a prophet. And she was someone they depended on to hear from God. In fact, when they got back to the wilderness, again, they saw Moses as the lawgiver, Aaron as the high priest. But rabbi after rabbi says Miriam was the leader people could see leading the charge, that they would pack up in the morning and look up and see Miriam in the front and then be ready to go. She was someone they can see and relate to. And, And then in a little bit, we'll talk about, you know, a time when she sinned greatly against God. But even in that sin... She's banished from the people for seven days outside of the camp. And because of their relationship and dedication to her, all of Israel waited out her punishment. They said, we will not go forth until the seven days are done. In Numbers 20, there's this interesting passage about, you know, water from a rock. It starts a series, really, of water from a rock. In verse 1 in Numbers 20, it talks about Miriam's death. And immediately after she dies, there's no water. And Jewish tradition understood that to be that Miriam represented the gift of water. And part of the reason they didn't have water anymore because she had died. Again, I want to stress how influential she was to her culture and her people. When scripture says she's a prophet, it's not just a cute title they're giving her. It's saying she was important to the deliverance of Israel. In our proof, maybe, the most proof I found in scripture it comes in Micah 6. For those of us who grew up in church, Micah 6, 8, you know, it's probably a verse you had to memorize to go to camp or you had to memorize at some point in Sunday school. He has shown you, O mortal, 
what is good. But what does the Lord require of you but to do his justice, to love as he loved and to love his mercy and to walk in peace and shalom with your brothers and sister and your God. But that verse comes at the end, you know. In the first seven verses, God is actually putting Israel on trial. God is saying, Israel, what have I done to deserve this disloyalty? What have I done to deserve this broken heart? What have I done for you to keep failing me over and over again? And God is yelling out to the mountains and the hills because he's like, you guys have been here forever. You've been here for generations. You've seen what I've done for them. Why do they keep breaking my heart? And it's this great insight to what sin does to our God. God is heartbroken in Micah 6, and he puts Israel on trial, and he has the hills and the mountains as his jury. And God says, my people, to follow me is to look like me, is to live like me, is to love like me. When you don't do that, you're not following me. And when God recaps what he's done for Israel, he talks about delivering them from Egypt. He talks about delivering them from the foreign kings. But then in verse 4 of Micah, God says, look at my works. Look at how I've been faithful in your journey. But remember, to save you, I sent Moses. I sent Aaron, and I sent Miriam. Miriam was a prophet in all sense of the word. But I think probably the greatest lesson I got from Miriam, it's a lesson we all have to be reminded she was a prophet. She wasn't perfect. Being human, we lack. Being God, he's whole. Being human, we fall short. You know, when I was in Sunday school, we learned about all these great heroes of faith, you know? And I would struggle with it because I'm just like, they're just humans. You know, they mess up too. Like, I don't get it, right? Then I got to seminary and I had a mentor who said, well, God's the real hero of the story. And I said, where were you in Sunday school? This would have been really helpful, you know? Like, just tell me who the hero is and I'm good. But the thing about Miriam here is it's a reminder for us that God knows we're not perfect. God knows we'll fall short, but God asks us to always come back to him. Miriam has an incident in Numbers chapter 12. It's one that is kind of like confused people and people have debated for, for, for ages, for generations. In Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron rise up against Moses. And they rise up against Moses because he has a Cushite wife. At least that's how the, the chapter starts. So the first question becomes, well, well, who, who was this Cushite? You know, like who is, what is a Cushite? First of all, you know, but who is this Cushite wife? Now, in Scripture, whenever you see Cush, it's usually a mention for sub-Saharan Africa. So that means if you chop off North Africa, which some of us Africans like to do, it's not good, but we do it. But if you chop off North Africa, right, you say that's really still the Middle East, and you go to sub-Saharan Africa, that means people as dark as me. Those were the Cushites. So you start thinking, it's just like, was well, Miriam being racist? Like, did Moses marry a black woman? And Miriam was like, not cool. What's going on here? So that's the first thing you got to walk through. You got to work through that, right? The second one it's probably even more problematic than racism, which is wild, because we're in America. What's more problematic than racism? Is that Moses was the great deliverer of Israel. We know his wife. Her name's Zipporah. We also know that God has, has told Moses to send her back to her father in Midian. Her father was Midian, to send her back to Midian. And we know in Scripture, Moses only had these two children that were from Zipporah. So the question becomes, are they mad because 
yeah, like Moses took up another wife and didn't even talk to them or talk to God about it. That seems messed up too. But then you got to try to piece this together. It's like a puzzle this week. It was fun. You got to piece this together. The first thing is, if Scripture only lists Zipporah as Moses' wife, then the Cushite must be Zipporah. So then you get back to this, it's like, well, maybe they're just racist then, I guess. You know, why do they hate Zipporah so much? The second thing you need to realize is that, yes, Cush references sub-Saharan Africa, but later in Jewish texts, they also started calling Midian Cush. And what was um, um, Zipporah's dad's name? Midian. So again, it just reinforces that this Cushite was definitely Zipporah, right? So then the Jewish people got together, the rabbis got together, and they're like, you know what I think it is? I think Zipporah was special. You know, I think she was, you know, I think the Cushite is a reference to not just her being black, but it was a, a reference to her being beautiful. And I'm just like, you're right, black is beautiful. You're right, that sounds good. I like that interpretation, you know? And then they're like, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a representation of, of her beauty and her actions, but when you read through the rest of the story, it seems less about Zipporah or the Cushite and more about Miriam and Moses. So you get back and you say, what was the issue? Now, when Moses goes up on the mountain, right, God actually put this on the people. And he says in, in Exodus 19, 15 even, he says, you know, consecrate yourselves. Those of you who are married, you should have no relations. Don't be with your wives. Don't be with your husbands. Consecrate yourselves, right? So then there's some rabbis who are just like, no, it's not about her being black. It's not about her being beautiful. It's not about her being, you know, a, a, a good person who are following God. It's about the fact that Moses thinks he's special because God says we should all consecrate ourselves. Why is Moses still away from his wife? You know, so there's people who land there. But again, when you go back to the rest of the story in Numbers 12, you realize it's about something else. Miriam is questioning God and asking God, why is Moses so special? God, didn't you also speak to me? God, don't I also relate to your people? God, aren't I also a prophet? Why is he so special? And this is a great time for us to park the bus a little bit and to realize that our faith is not meant to be a competition, to realize that your relationship with God is very different than her relationship with God, is very different than his relationship with God, and that's okay. There's a jealousy that sometimes breeds in the church and among God's people who are just like, well, I need to be holier like she's holy, and maybe God will bless me then. That's the issue. Miriam, even though she was this great prophet in all Israel, knew there was something different about her brother Moses and said, God, why is he so special? And it's a reminder to us that jealousy can attack any of us. That when we take our eyes off Jesus, we take our eyes off of God, we can end up in very dark and ugly places. We stop focusing on who God says we are, what God calls us to do, and we start focusing on that person and them instead of God and how he's going to grow and use me. And this angers God. It angers God because in Numbers 12, God is so angry, he, he basically pushes the three of them, this great leadership of all Israel, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, he pushes them out of the camp. And God is so angry, he says, you know what? You're right. Moses is special. When I speak to prophets, I give them visions, I give them dreams, I give them riddles, and it's hard for them to figure it out. But Moses is my friend. I speak to him face to face. 
And I love that because that's the relationship that God now desires to have with us today. We have to remember our God is a communal God. Our God exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. This desire that you need people around you, you need one another, you didn't come up with that. God did. This desire that you can't make it on your own and you, know, you, like, you need people to, to elevate, to encourage, and to build you up, that's not from the world. That's not from you. That's from God. We are meant to need each other. And I think God himself had the Trinity, but he knew his relationship with Moses was different because he could just talk to him. And all of us in here who are blessed with friends, we know our friendships are different. We're friends we haven't seen in 20 years, and we can pick up right where we left off. Right? God knew there was something different, and he wanted them to see that. But he's so angry, not that Moses was different. He's upset that their jealousy didn't allow them to see how much he loved and cared for Miriam. And he punishes her. You know, someone in the last service said this, and I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. He's like, yeah, 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 you think about this, right? They might have been mad that Zipporah was black, so God gave her leprosy, so now she's white. And I was just like, "Uh, I don't think that's where I'm going to go. But it's a way to think about it, right? But what I struggled with on the punishment was this, though. What I struggled with on the punishment was this. How come Miriam is the only one who's really punished, Right? In Numbers 12, it talks about, you know, Miriam and Aaron both rise up against God. And it talks about how, like, they rise up against God and why is Moses so special, but Miriam bears the brunt of the punishment. And I was just like, God, this is weird. Like, how come, I mean, you said Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, like, how come they didn't both get it? And then I remember there's this thing in, 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 in Scripture, right? And we get this in the New Testament. So, for example, in the New Testament, there's a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, right? And for years, we knew Priscilla's a woman's name right? We didn't need commentaries. We didn't need like Hebrew or Greek. We knew Priscilla's a woman's name because even in this day, we use the name Priscilla, right? But, you know, whenever it lists the person first, that means that's who led the charge. So our struggle with Priscilla and Aquila was just like, ah, like she's mentioned first. So she's kind of like the pastor, like she's the apostle. She's the one in charge, but, but she's a woman, so she can't be. So I don't know what to do with that, right? No, 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 no. She was the one in charge. And that points us back to this story with Miriam. The reason she gets the punishment is because she was the leader and she led the charge against Moses. And to me, that's a haunting reminder because here's the thing. Once you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you're a leader. Now, all of us lead differently. Not all of us are up front. But there's a responsibility on each of us to live and love like Jesus Christ lives and loves. The responsibility that falls on Miriam as a prophet, as a woman who's in front of all the people, is that she's supposed to lead and live the way God lives. And when she doesn't, there was repercussions. And it's a reminder to all of us that when we say we follow Jesus Christ, it's not just about are you shining your light. If you're not shining your light, God's going to hold you accountable. And I'm not just saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to motivate you. But if you're scared and you're scared of action, that's not bad either. I mean, it is, but we'll take it for now, right? But all of us have a responsibility to live and love like Christ. And every single Christian in this room is a leader. So that means in the workplace or in the school. That means in your relationships or the people you walk with in the street. Go back to Jacobed. How is my faith bringing life? That's the question you have to ask because God has made you and chosen you to be a leader and he knows you all lead differently. He just wants you to lead well.
He wants you to shine your light brighter. He wants you to fix the brokenness. But what I also think about this leprosy, and I was like, God, I get that. You know, she was first, she was the leader. How come she suffered and Aaron didn't? But then it hit me that immediately when she's hit with leprosy, Moses' reaction was to pray for her and ask God to help. Now, it's interesting because, you know, there's, there's a lot of thinking that Moses is the one who wrote the Torah, right? Like, he's the lawgiver. He wrote the story. And in Numbers 12, this is one verse that, to me, it's a weird verse that tells me that maybe Moses didn't write this. Because if he wrote this, it's kind of weird, right? But in Numbers 12, 3, in the middle of this whole scene where God's angry, he pushed him out of camp, she gets leprosy. Right in the middle is a verse that says, now Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth, you know? And I'm like, if you're that humble, you don't got to remind us, you know? It's just like, I, I know this is all happening and Miriam's about to get in trouble, but wasn't I so humble? But he cries out to God on her behalf. And I thought about, you know, she's still suffering though. But then I remembered Moses as the lawgiver had to be fair to every Israelite. He couldn't show preference on his own sister. If God decreed this, he couldn't go out of character and be like, I know God, God made this up, but you're my sister, so I got to let you off the hook. So Moses is kind of stuck. Then Aaron is the priest. You know, in that culture, they believe that you had nothing to do with leprosy. You kick them out of camp. They do the healing. When it's time come, maybe they do a bath or something, and then we'll pray for them, right? So he's also compromised. All of Israel, they sat right in the stand. They're like, we're not moving anywhere until she's done. So where's Miriam? She's outside the camp. And then I remembered something about our God. I will never leave you or forsake you. And I started thinking about, I went from, man, God is so mean and angry and he's doing this. And then I remembered that everyone abandoned her because of her punishment except God. And I think the proof of it is it doesn't matter if you do the Midrash, the Talmud, the Old Testament, the New Testament. There's nowhere in written scripture that we, or, or, or Jewish writings even that we find that Miriam complained against God for her punishment. And I think it's because for those seven days, God was with her. God was healing her. God was saying, you messed up, but I forgive you and I'm here. And it's a great reminder to us because I think there's a lot of us who love God but we kind of live in this duality. We frame this reality that when I'm doing good, God is with me. God blesses me. And then when I'm not doing so good, God is not with me. God doesn't love me. And there's a lot of us who stay there, and it's not true. You need to know that God is with you at the mountaintop, but he's also with you in the valley. You need to know this morning that when you're trying to walk up the valley and you slip and fall, he's still there ready to pick you back up. You need to know whether your life feels like quicksand or you're stuck in the mire or the darkness is so thick that it's against your skin. You need to know that God still says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is a God who's always going to be there. One of the greatest lessons I've learned in my life was when I realized that God does not make it his business to be disappointed with me. Now, God is not pleased when I don't live to honor him. God is maybe angry depending on what I did because he does get angry if we don't do right, right? But God's never disappointed. Here's what I mean by that. You know, we as people, when we're hurt or when we're disappointed, we become very insular and we think about our disappointment. God always hopes. God always hopes. When you fall short, God doesn't look at you. He's like, I'm so disappointed in you. He hopes that he could pick you back up again. 
It's a blessing that our God gives us. And there's so many of us in this room who are really good at accepting that God forgives us, but we're not willing to forgive ourselves. God is not disappointed in you. That's not what, you know, that's not the framework of his relationship with you. The framework is love. The framework is forgiveness. There's nothing you can do that God hasn't seen before. Think about that for a second. Sometimes you're like, I'm just living wrong. I'm just messing up. God doesn't go like, oh, yeah, she did that. Yeah, she's off the team now. You know, I was good with her, but she's off the team. That's not how God works. There's nothing you can do that he hasn't seen before, that he hasn't forgiven before, that he hasn't delivered before, that he hasn't redeemed before. There's nothing. When we say nothing can separate you from the love of God, God means it. God means it. That's why when Miriam is outside of the camp for seven days, God is with her in her suffering. God is with her to get her through. Seven days wasn't seven days of punishment. It was seven days of healing and communion with God. So what do we pull from Miriam? I got three things I think we need to hold on to. The first one I love about Miriam, if you go back to our Exodus 15 text, you know, when I was a kid, like, I really had a hard time with this song. We sang this song all the time at church, Sunday school, you know, camps, right? It was like, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. And then the kids, they told us to sing what? Splish, splash. And as a kid, I remember sitting there like, this is like a little bit messed up. Like, I mean, I get it. You know, they're Egyptians and it's slavery and like it wasn't good. But like, why are we splish splashing like people drowning into the sea, you know? But now I'm more mature about it. And I've learned from Exodus 15, though, this thing I love by Miriam. After God's great miracle, she was ready to praise. There's nowhere that says, you know, the horse and rider fell into the sea, and then she took three days, and then blah, blah. It says right away she had her timbrel in her hand, and she led the women out singing. And I love that about her because I think, God, we are working and walking miracles. And we need to live to tell God's story. So much of our culture says, you know, you got to tell your story. It's about your story. When you choose to follow Jesus, it becomes about his story and what he's done in you. And if you're willing to live that way, you got to be like Miriam. And when God does the miracle, you got to proclaim it from the rooftops or at least live it with your life. You got to be out there with your timbrels banging away and telling the world what God has done. Because our world's not going to know God if we're not telling what God's done. God is big and God is working and God is moving. But your job is to simply tell the story of what God's done for you. The second thing I love about Miriam is that she was raised ready to lead. She was raised ready to lead. You might not believe the Jewish writings, but they believe that, you know, at a young age, she prophesied her brother's birth. So that's four years old. They also believe at seven years old, she's the one who told her dad, stop being dumb, get back with mom, right? Scripture then tells us that at seven years old, she's the one who went up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, yeah, you know what? I should find you a Hebrew midwife. You know, I should, I should find a Hebrew midwife for you, right? She was raised ready to lead. And it's a reminder to us, how are we raising our children? Are we raising them to be scared of the world or to be light in the world? Are we raising them to all the badness and brokenness of the world? Are we raising them to be like, yeah, it's bad and broken, but hey, God chose you to help mend it, you know? 
I, I, I heard from a, 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 there's a lady who's a sociologist up north in Canada, right? And she's Canadian, but she's mostly right on this. You know? She's all the way right on this, but it's just the Canadian I'm working with, right? Um, she's Canadian, but she did this study. She looked at little boys and little girls, and she found that little boys grow in confidence, you know? And as a man, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, you know, because when I was nine, I was not as cocky as I was at 19. And then when I was like 29, I finally got like, oh, humble. Like, yeah, I'm supposed to grow, right? Like, boys grow in confidence. She found that. So I read that, and I'm just like, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think society and culture probably gives boys too much of an advantage, but I get that. I get what's going on. The second part of the survey, like, just reverberate to my soul, and it challenges me on so many levels. When she looked at little girls, she found that little girls peak in confidence at nine years old. Nine years old. That should arrest all of our spirits and souls and being. That while our boys are being growing in confidence, our girls are peaking at nine years old. This is the part of the service where I'm not just, you know, begging, but I'm inviting you to invest in children and youth. I'm inviting you to invest in children and youth ministry, and there's a board out there and a board in the lobby for you to sign up, because here's the thing. If our little girls at nine years old are deciding they don't know who God is, they don't know who they are, they don't think they're good enough, it is our job to change that narrative. And there's ways you can do it. You can pray for them. You can invest in them. You can mentor them. But you have to do something. And I'm not saying we're just going to destroy all of this in society as a whole, but I am saying the children and youth in this church, in your life, that's your responsibility. And here's what I am begging you to do, too, because it's not just about little girls. I'm 36 years old, and I meet with tons of men, and sometimes we're going through all of this because we as men grow up with these toxic ideas of what it means to be a man and toxic masculinity, and I'm begging you on this one. Make my job easier and get to them when they're little boys. Get to them when they're little boys and tell them what it means to be a man in God and tell them what the world tells them about manhood is not right. If you get to them now, I'll gladly take them in 20 years, and we can talk about something else. But all of us, all of us are required to invest in the next generation. Now, I know some of you are like, well, I don't even like kids. Well, pray for them, right? I know some of you are like, I'm too busy. There are so many different ways you can help. There's so many ways. You can sign up to teach a class. You can sign up to be a mentor. You can sign up to come for special events. You can sign up to be a substitute and be like, Pastor Patty, listen, put me number seven on the list. If six people can't do it, I will be number seven, and then I know it's a sign from God. (laughs) But we all have to invest. The story of Miriam is that she was raised ready to lead. The challenge I have for us this morning is, are we willing to raise our children ready to lead in Christ, ready to lead for Christ, and ready to raise up these leaders? And the last thing is that Miriam simply fully trusted God always and in everything. Even in her punishment and suffering, she never cursed God because she knew he was with her. And it's a reminder to us God, where am I willing to trust you more? What do I need to trust you more on? Where do I need to fully trust you? And it's always a good question to ask. And it's always a good thing to work on. Because what your faith is meant to be built. And this faith that's built is meant to have all of you, not just part of you. I'd like to invite up Pastor Esty and the worship team. We're going to close with a song that might be new to some of us. a song called Waymaker. And I love this song, and I think it's a great way to end.
Because this song is a reminder to us that no matter what situation we're in, our God is a way maker. No matter what we're going through, our God is a promise keeper. No matter where we are this morning, praise God who makes the way. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors. Um, we would love to pray for you any way we can. Whatever you got going on, please come up. We'd love to pray for you. Now, I know some of you got kids going off to school tomorrow. Maybe you're struggling with some of that. It's okay. They're going to be lights in the world, and you get free time. Everyone wins, right? <laughs> Unless you homeschool, then I just got to pray for you. So good luck. Maybe they can get quiet time in a corner or something. But I want to invite all of us to stand up and sing this song. And as we sing this song together, I just want you to be reminded of this simple truth. Our God loves you. Our God calls you. Our God makes a way so that you can make a way. Let's stand and sing together.